So we are continuing our study of Genesis, it's chapter 13 we're going into in just a moment. Um, but let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, we just pray now your blessing upon us as we sit, as we study, as we meditate on these things. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Stir our hearts that we may, Lord, be Oh, Lord, just overwhelmed by your goodness, by your grace, by your provision, by your leading. Lord, by your exceedingly great and precious promises. Uh, Lord, we see, Lord, your faithfulness. Lord, whenever we look at your word. Um, but Lord, particularly in this portion as we study this morning. So we just ask now that you speak to us through your spirit. Give us ears to hear, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so once again, we've uh, come as far in our study through Genesis as this like, part two, as it were, from chapter 12 onwards, uh, really from chapter 12 through to chapter 20, we start, we, we get really the life of Abraham. It kind of carries on into chapter 22, but that's that portion 21, 22, as we see Isaac really come onto the scene. And the last half of Genesis, really, from Genesis 12 through to the end, uh, we see this count of these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, uh, these people so influential in the, the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, we talked last time at how God had uh, allowed all those things that had taken place with Babel and so on, that test that we were talking about with Job that God allowed um, before the time of Abraham to establish the fact that man can serve God, not because of the blessings, but simply because God is God. And once that has been established, and once Satan's argument has been defeated, then God begins this incredible plan of redemption to bring the Savior into this world, the seed of the woman, but to be done through this family, this family of Abraham, the family that we come to know as Israel. And again, Revelation chapter 12 gives us a, a great summary, really, of all history in this regard, as we see this attempt by Satan to stop the seed of the woman coming into the world and all those battles and so on that we read about through the Old Testament that so many people misunderstand are all part of Satan's attempt to stop the Messiah coming. And then once we get to the time that Jesus was born, of course, we have him dying and raising from the dead again. And Satan then turns his attention, his attacks, specifically on the nation of Israel. And we've seen that through history, and it's going to intensify in the days ahead. But what we're looking at now are really these kind of, um, just the embryonic stage for this nation, as God was calling Abraham and leading him. And we talked about the way that God had led him. We'll talk a bit more about those altars that we mentioned last week in a, in a short while. But let's jump straight into chapter 13. And uh, we pick up the account. Remember, we saw Abraham travel down into Egypt because there'd been a famine in the land. Ne never a good idea. Is, uh, we're told in uh, Isaiah, uh, woe unto them that go down to Egypt. Uh, and there was never a, a good occasion that came out of people going down to Egypt. Of course, God does allow through Joseph the nation to go down into Egypt so that they would be protected from the inhabitants of Canaan. And we'll talk more about that in a short while. But when people went of their own volition, because really out of a lack of faith of God's provision, we always see problems. And we read verse 1 of chapter 13, and Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, 
into the south. That's the south of Israel, the, the area of the Negev. Now, it's interesting that phrase there, and all that he had, because one of the things that had been acquired, as it were, if you remember that Abraham gets to Egypt and he concocts this story to, to suggest to Sarah, don't, don't say that I'm you know, your husband, that we're married, because they might try and kill me. And so it ends up that Sarah, or Sarai, as she's at that point, gets taken into the harem. Now, as was the custom, somebody that was in the harem would be given somebody to attend to them. And seemingly, the Sarai, that was a young girl by the name of Hagar, given to Sarah to look after her, her needs and so on. Well, when Abraham leaves, one of the things that now they have is this young servant girl, Hagar, who comes back with them into Israel. And of course, we'll see as we go through subsequent chapters, the problems that that caused. All really, I believe, out of a a lack of faith. Abraham had been told to come into this land of Canaan. And yes, there was problems, there was difficulties. There was a real issue with the famine, a real famine. But God could still provide for them. And God could still provide in our lives when we go through times of drought. So, again, this problem, all really a, a result of ultimately a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. And verse 2 says, And Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. And now a number of commentators suggest that this isn't something he just acquired down in Egypt or in Canaan. This is something that had come with him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, up to Haran where they stayed for possibly five years before coming down into Canaan. And Abraham, seemingly a very wealthy individual, he must have caused a bit of a stir in Ur of the Chaldees when he suddenly gets up and says, I'm going now, and leaves. And again, would no doubt have explained to them, well, I'm going because... God has called me. And as we said last time, that time that in earth they worshipped multitudes of gods, all sorts of different things, and days of the week, and named after deities and so on, named after planets, and all sorts of things they worshipped. And Abraham comes out of that culture. And God calls him to be separate. But seemingly as he comes out, he comes out with a lot of wealth uh, that God already blessed him. But we read, verse 3, that he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, Remember, that means the house of God. Beth and El, uh, Beth being house and El, the, the name of God, as in Elohim, uh, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning. It's just kind of a little bit like the story we read or the account we read of the, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. You know, they go full circle back to Kidrath, uh, um, uh, apart. When they, they, they stopped, they'd been there, they were ready to go into the promised land, and then they go for that 38-year wander, back to where they were. And Abraham now just back to where he had been. All that time seemingly had been lost. Uh, and again, we're told, between Bethel and Ai. Again, that's the same Ai that Joshua ends up conquering. And we, we talked last time about, you know, he's, he's somewhere between the house of God and the place of ruins. That's what Ai means. And a lot of us end up kind of making our camp there. We're still kind of, there's still part of the world that's in our lives. Some of the things that we, we get involved in and spend our time doing and things. And, yeah, but a lot of, another part of our lives, we want to be in the house of God. And we find ourselves between those two things. We were talking at the men's meeting on Thursday evening. And I was saying how it was interesting that the week before, as we've been having that week of, of prayer and fasting, how everything had been centered and focused on God. And how suddenly the week after, you know, it's kind of been back to normality in many ways with work. And I can remember a lot of the things that happened last or this week's just gone. But the week before, I can remember a lot of what had happened because everything was about God. It was praying. It was seeking God. And really all the work-related problems that occurred, I just passed to God because I was too busy praying. And then this week, 
Well, isn't it funny how we can just go back into those old habits of just trying to do things because we think we know how to do them and we we can solve that problem or this problem. And there's all sorts of examples we find in Scripture of these kind of things. Uh, Many of the, the kings of Israel went through situations where one minute they're trusting God in an impossible situation and then the next moment a seemingly easy problem, but they don't trust God. And they try and do it in the flesh, in the natural. And God ends up rebuking them for these things as we go through. But Abraham here in his place, verse 4, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And then notice now, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now we're not told specifically what had made Abraham call on the name of the Lord. Cry out to God. I suspect it could have been that he's come to this point. And like often we get to in our lives, it's like, but Lord, now what? He, he hasn't heard God's voice for a while. This trip down to Egypt has kind of been a bit of a disaster, really. And now he's back and he's come back to the Lord and he's calling out to God. You know, God had made these great promises to Abraham, how he was going to be blessed and, you know, the, the, the father of many nations and the whole earth was going to be blessed because of him. Verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt then in the land. We're given a little bit of information there. We'll talk more about those things in a short while. But we've got this problem that occurs, that God seemingly allows. Because all through this, we've got this... It's a case really of disobedience. And this whole strife with, with Lot, very much unnecessary. You see, Abraham had not fully obeyed God to this point. Now, do you remember he'd been told quite clearly, get thee out of thy country. But part of the instruction that God had given was, and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Now, initially he'd gone up to Haran and he stayed there until his father had died. And then he comes down into to Canaan. You see, Abraham is a great example of somebody who we, we have, particularly Hebrews 11 and elsewhere, held up as a great example of faith, and indeed he is. But there's an element of kind of comfort for us that he's also somebody that messed things up from time to time, that did things his own way, that didn't always fully trust God. And yet God is moving this individual further and further away from the world and closer to him. And isn't that what happens and we see in our own lives? You see, up until this point, Abraham had not separated from his kindred because Lot is still with him. You see, and God's blessing couldn't come as long as Abraham held on to his old life. You see, God had given a very clear instruction. And whether Abraham, at this point, realized it or not, he was in a place of disobedience. And he cries out to God, seemingly it's like, Lord, where are you? Well... God calls each of us to be separate from this world. And note the comment I've put there, not mostly separate, not most of the time. That's not how it works. A song I remember from many years ago just said, God above doesn't work in fractions. And he wants our all. You know, and God calls us to be separate from this world. He doesn't want us to be separate from the world on Sundays when we're at church or when we go to, to meetings with other Christians. Or maybe a couple of times during the week. God wants us to be separate all the time. 
you know, in the everyday kind of scenarios and situations we find ourselves in. Where nobody's looking. That's where God wants us to be separate from the things of this world. And just like Abraham here, sometimes it's hard to, to let go. And we read verse 8. And Abraham said unto Lot, so this is seemingly after he's called on the Lord. Now Abraham seemingly has an idea of what's gone wrong and why maybe he's not seeing the blessings that he thought he was going to see at this point. He says, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen, for we're brethren. It's not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes. Notice, lifted up his eyes. It's what he saw with the natural eyes, the natural mind. And beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And then we've read, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly it's interesting that it's mentioned at this point that there was some real problem with what was going on in Sodom and of course Gomorrah the neighboring city you know this is a problem that existed as Lot was journeying to this area Lot must have been aware of these things and yet still chooses to go there and it's interesting if you look at these steps that Lot takes first of all he beheld again looking with the, the natural eyes and it seemed good. I mean, you go back to the Garden of Eden. Think of Eve. She looked at the fruit, the lust of the eyes. And then we find the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All of these things coming into play in Lot's situation here. He chose. He departed. These are the steps that we read. He dwelt, first of all, in the plain. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then he ends up dwelling in Sodom. And then we find him seated in the gate. He becomes part of the town council. Kind of a a downward spiral. And it's very interesting when we look at the the two. Abraham coming to this place in his life where he's seeking God. You know, David is another one of these characters that we read. Lots of mistakes are made. I think David ticked every box when it comes to the mistakes you can make. And yet we're told of David he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David wasn't content with those things. David didn't want to have those things in his life. He wanted God more than anything. And yes, he stumbled. And yes, he made mistakes. But every time he comes and repents, repents. In Psalm 51, one of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible, this psalm of repentance after David's transgression with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah and so on. As David comes to the Lord and says, Lord, against thee only have I sinned. Well, Abraham, very similar kind of character. Not always doing the right thing. Not always making the right decisions. But are we wanted to serve God? And as he becomes aware of the fact that he hasn't separated from his brethren, he speaks a lot, he takes initiative and then effectively sends Lot away. But we see this contrast. Abraham walked by faith, whereas Lot walked by sight. Abraham, we find, was generous and magnanimous. Again, you can be like that if you know that God is leading and God is blessing. Lot, on the other hand, greedy, worldly, from what we see. Abraham, we're told again in Hebrews, looks for a 
a city whose builder and maker was God. That's what Abraham was looking. That was the inheritance that Abraham was after, whereas Lot made a home in a city that eventually becomes destroyed by God. Abraham, of course, we find is the father of all who believe. <laughs> Lot has this perpetual infamy as we go on to see his descendants, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so on, and we'll look at that as we carry on through our study if the Lord tarries. Abraham, we're told, is an heir of the world. And the same as all saints. We're going to inherit, inherit this world through Christ with the things that he will give us, whereas Lot ends up looking for this wonderful place he's going to. It ends up just dwelling in a cave, and all his possessions get destroyed. You know, didn't Jesus say something about if you love this life and the things of this life, you'll lose them? But, you know, if you put your treasure in heaven, well, then it's secure. And yet, for all of this, painting a bleak picture of, of Job, I'll just read this to you from Second Peter. And it's just coming halfway through. He says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. And then we're told, For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. I think it's really fascinating that we have this record of Job in recording it in God's word. Because Peter's not saying, well, I think that Job was kind of a, a good guy. This is the Holy Spirit bearing witness here. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day. But what I think is interesting is that for any who have been justified, any who have been saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can still live in this world. We can still be closely associated with the things of this world to our harm. It doesn't change the fact that we're justified because we're not justified based upon our works but upon what Christ has done for us. You see, from day to day we're told that Lot was vexed because of the things that were going on around him. But why didn't he leave? You see, we're going to find that ultimately when we're taken from this world and we stand before the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ, that we read about in Second Corinthians, we're going to stand there. And as First Corinthians 3 tells us, everything we have done will be judged, will be assessed by, as it were, fire. Gold, silver, precious stones indicating the works of those that have lived their lives for the Lord. Those who clearly separated themselves from the things of this world. And those maybe like Lot here. That didn't approve necessarily of the things that were going on around them, but never had the wisdom to get out of there. And we're told of others that build then with wood, hay and stubble. And of course we're told that in First Corinthians 3 that those works are all judged by fire. And we know what happens. You put wood, hay, and straw into a fire, it just gets consumed. Well, that's the works of those who are living with one foot in the world. You have nothing. It all gets burnt up. But those that are, are living for the Lord, those that are seeking God and for his glory, it's like the gold, silver, and precious stones. What happens when they go through fire? Purify. Now, of course, we're not saved by our works, but we are rewarded according to them. 
The Bible speaks of a number of different types of rewards. We'll talk about that some other time. We have covered it as well in the past. But the interesting thing about the gold, silver, and precious stones, I read a comment recently, that they're rare. You don't find them very often. You have to dig for them. You know, the things that are pleasing to God are not something that are just easy. You stumble across it. No, this is stuff that takes time. You know, and we need to put time aside to pray and to dig into God's word, to seek him, even to to meditate on his word, to allow his word to change the way we think. And we don't just stumble across gold on the, the road or walking over the hills or anything. It's buried. You have to dig for it. It takes effort. And that's what the Lord would have for those that want him, that we let go of the things of this world and we just, like Abraham is starting to get to that point now, become separate. Verse 14, we carry on. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Notice God had allowed, so Abraham had allowed God to choose for him here. Abraham had effectively said to Lot, you choose which bit you have and I'll have the rest. Kind of let's God be involved in that decision making. He just trusts us. There's really real faith starting to come to the fore now with Abraham. And God now says to him, now that he's finally in the place that God wanted him, that he's departed from the place he lived, from Ur of the Chaldees, he's now in the land that God had called him to come to, and that he's now separated from his brethren, now God reiterates this blessing. This is the second time this blessing is reiterated to Abraham for all the land which thou seest to thee now I really want you to note this because it is so so important to thee will I give it that means it's God's this is God's land and God is saying I will give it to you and to thy seed forever now again so important this is forever this is God saying this this isn't this is until at some point in history, the political landscape changes and so on. This isn't until such a time as the United Nations would be established and they can make a decision regarding who has which piece of land. This isn't until such a time as subsequent world empires would decide whose piece of land this is. This is God's land. He gives it to Abraham and his seed forever. It's very clear. And again, this is reiterated a number of times, as we'll see over these coming weeks again if the Lord tarries and verse 16 says and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth then shall thy seed also be numbered verse 16 and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth then thy seed also shall be numbered he says arise walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it for I will give it unto thee. What an incredible promise. But notice that this blessing comes when Abraham gets into that place of moving away from those things of the world, separating and getting where God wanted him to be. And then we read this at the end of this chapter, verse 18. Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And there built an altar unto the Lord. See, Abraham's now come to the place of obedience and surrender, and he's now positionally where God wanted him to be. 
both geographically but also, more importantly, spiritually. Now, again, last week we looked at these altars, three altars that Abraham builds, and the fourth one is at God's command. The three he builds of his own volition, and the fourth one at God's command. As we said, that first one at Shechem, and it's just a place of the world, effectively. It speaks of the flesh. It's a place of burdens. That's what the name Shechem actually means. The second one, as we mentioned a moment ago, between Bethel and I, between the house of God and ruins. So we're moving away from the world, but there's still a strong attachment there. And now we come to the one we've just been looking at, this altar that's built at Hebron. And Hebron speaks of fellowship. That The name has that, that idea in the Hebrew of associated, being joined together with. And Hebron, Abraham effectively is joined together with God and God's plan and God's purpose for his life. Now there is going to be one more altar that we're going to see that God is going to get Abraham to build and that will be on Mount Moriah when we get to Genesis chapter 22. And it really is the place of ultimate sacrifice. It's where he's called to lay down his son. But ultimately at that point is also where Abraham lays down his own life, where he surrenders to the will of God. Despite how crazy that seems on the surface. And of course, we'll look at that in detail when we get to chapter 22. Let's go and take one more chapter this morning. We'll do chapter 14. And we see here the battle of the nine kings. This is just a very interesting thing that we find inserted into this account. Now, again, God obviously felt this was important for us to have these details. So why? Well, let's just have a look at the detail. First of all, we read in verse 1, It came to pass in the days of... Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these, so that group of nations, made war with, and this is the second group, Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belem, which is Zoar. And these were joined together in the valley of Sidon, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So we've got this group of kings in the south, and they rebel against this king Chedorlaomer. I like to call him the big cheese. Okay? You might remember that then. He's the one that's the leader. But notice just an interesting thing there, because we're the first one in this list in verse 1 is not the one that's the leader of the gang, in that sense. Chedorlaomer is the king who is uh, the, the, the principal one that's joined his other four nations with him. But the one that's listed first was the king of Shinar. Shinar being the place where Babylon is located. And again, we've mentioned in scripture that very often we find this, that when we have lists of names or of people or of places, they're listed in order of biblical significance. And Shinar, of course, and Babylon, this king, would ultimately become very influential, very important in the future history of Israel. So they're listed first in this list. So if you look at that on a map, you've got this kind of kingdom here, this whole kind of uh, mushy pea color, this side. Uh, Chidalamar's empire, all of this empire is what he looks after. And then you've got this bottom area down here, um, kind of the, well, you've got Canaan, you can just see, and then these Hamite kings, this gray area. So the, the larger empire, of course, being the one at the top. And they have got the, the superiority. The Hamite kings serve them until such a time as they decide they're going to rebel. The Hamite kings rebel against Chedorlaomer and his empire and his kings. Now, from a family perspective, the ones that we're seeing in the, the northern section there, they're, they're all descendants of Shem. 
So again, Chedorlaomer, this is the one that's leader of that group from Shem, and then the ones descended from Ham are the ones in the, the southern area of Canaan and down below that. So these are the two groups that, that are coming together. Again, just to recap, for 12 years, the ones, the Hamite kings, served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year, they decide they've had enough of it, they're not going to pay taxes, they're not going to do what they wanted to do, and they rebel against them. Well, Chedorlaomer then defeats them in his battle, spoils them and they take all the substance and goods and rebels away with them and amongst this group that are taken captive we find that lot is captured as well of course abraham's nephew and he's taken captive along with all the other people from sodom so we just read on in the 14th year came chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him and smote now this is interesting the rephaims okay now look at these names here we've got the rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zazumins in Ham, and the Emims in Shava Kirathayim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to En Mishfat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazon Ezon Tamar. Now, what's going on here? These individuals are the ones that we've already encountered. They're the ones who we really see mentioned and brought, first of all, to our attention in Genesis chapter 6. Do you remember that there were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward, is what Genesis 6 tells us. Well, the Rephaims, like a, a banner name that covers really all of this group, but also a specific element in themselves, the name means the dead ones or the walking dead. These are the, the nations that, that sprung up the offspring of the fallen angels and the women of the earth, infesting this whole region. And it's interesting, why did God allow this battle? Or why do we even know about this battle? Because in the scheme of things, is it, is it such a big historical thing? Well, yeah, and this is why. Because you have to understand that after the flood, Satan wanted to stop the possibility of the seed coming, the seed of the woman, i.e. the Messiah. And this whole land becomes infected with these beings. Remember, even by the time of Joshua, when they send that delegation, those 12 spies into the land, what is it they come back and say? Great land, it's beautiful. It's a land of milk and honey, but there's giants there. Didn't want to go into the land because of it. Of course, God ultimately gives them the victory. But if we jump back and we look in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we see some of these names mentioned here. The Emims dwelt there in times past. Now, the times past that Moses here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is referring to is the time of Abraham that we're looking at. The Emims dwelt there in times past, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims. But the Moabites call them Emims, all these names. Let me just go back and look at this one more time. The, the, the Rephaims, Zumins, Emims, Horites, Amalekites, and so on, all of these, these groups. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 2, the Horims also dwelt in Seir before time. But notice what God does here. God will use, just as he's using Chedorlaomer in this whole situation, to start to destroy these groups. Also, we find the descendants of Esau also start to destroy them. Because we're told that the children of Esau succeeded them, but when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. 
And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, which is one of the descendants of Lot that we'll see, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. Now this is kind of jumping on, we haven't yet got to Lot's descendants, but we find the Ammonites are one of them, the Moabites are the others. And that, but notice also here, verse 20, that also was accounted the land of giants. Giants dwelt there in old time, and the Ammonites, uh, Ammonites called them Zamzumins. Sounds like a great uh, children's TV program, doesn't it, Zamzumins? A people great and many, as tall as the Anakims, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. Now, there's just something really interesting, I, I think. Uh, you might not find it interesting, I find it very interesting here. That the Lord uses these other nations to fulfill his plan and purpose in ridding the land of this satanic menace. Now, I do think it's quite interesting because we see in life and in the world in which we live all sorts of things. And sometimes people say, oh, but look, the Lord used them. And sometimes people then tag on to that. Well, therefore, it must be okay, or it must be good, or it must be of God. It doesn't condone these other nations But God uses these other nations in fulfilling his plan and purpose. And we need to be mindful of that. And even in the days that we live, we may see certain things take place where God will use a certain group or a certain whatever to fulfill his plan and purpose. That doesn't mean we suddenly turn around and say, well, therefore, that's okay. We need to remain discerning. I'll just share that with you. I just think it's an interesting aside. Let's jump back into verse 8 then. And they went out to the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admar and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, and the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the valley of Sidim. With, so that's the, the five kings of the south with Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, which is modern-day Persia, or sorry, Persia as it became modern-day Iran, Iraq, with Tidal, king of nations, Amorophel, king of Shinar, again, Babylon area, and Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings with five. And the valley of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they uh, that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So they raid, they destroy, they get all the spoil and everything else, and they take everybody away captive. And then we read verse 13, And they came, one that had escaped, and told Abraham, a Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorites, uh, the brother of Eshgol, and the brother of Anna, and these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. Now it's interesting here, because he's got a whole standing army, we find. Uh, born in his own house, 318 that's the size of Abraham's army. And pursued them unto Dan. So he's going after five kings and their amassed armies with his own army of 318. And we're told, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. So kind of going up out of the top of Israel as we have it today. Of course, we know where Damascus is, or what's left of it. Verse 16, and he brought back all the goods... And also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Just interesting here because given this scenario, Abraham doesn't say, oh Lot, look, come, come back with me. Come and live with me again. How easy would that have been? Wouldn't you and I have probably have done that? 
It would be so easy for Abraham at this point, or Abraham as he still is, at this point to say, oh, look, Lot, it's, it's kind of dangerous there. Just just come, come back, move back. But God had made it very clear that he was to remain separate. And seemingly, Abraham doesn't even present that option to Lot. You know, we've got to be careful because as we separate from things of this world, the devil will do all that he can and present situations and scenarios that make us seem like, well, maybe that's, maybe that's the best way. And Again, the king of Sodom, verse 17, went out to meet him. After his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him, at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And then we get introduced in verse 18 to this interesting character. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, place that you and I will later come to know as Jerusalem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. Now this is before the Aaronic priesthood, before Aaron, and before the time of the law, before God establishes the priesthood in Israel. But we're told that this man is a priest of the Most High God. You know, even all the way back to Adam and then obviously to Noah and to Noah's sons, there was this understanding of the need for the shedding of blood, for the atonement, of, to make atonement for sin. And we're told that Melchizedek here, clearly aware of all of these things that have been passed down, is in this position now as being a priest. But he's also a king, we find, the king of Salem. Just, that's just an interesting aside. There's actually three groups, as it were, or individuals in Scripture that have this title of being a king and a priest. Of course, Melchizedek, who we're looking at here, Jesus, that we're familiar with, of course, is both a king and a priest. And then the church, that we're called to be kings and priests. It's an interesting side study you can go off and look at if you want to go into that more detail. And we're told Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. That's God that's the possessor of heaven and earth, not Abraham. And blessed be the most high God, which has delivered thine enemies into thine hand and gave him tithes, and he gave him tithes of all. So Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. It's interesting because, I mean, Hebrews mentions this. We'll look at a couple of verses in a moment. But this is, again, even before the law, before tithing, before any of those things are, are mentioned. And there's a number of allusions we find to this Melchizedek. Otherwise, if it was just this portion, we would know very little about him. But Psalm 110, we have an allusion, and, and a number of passages we'll look at some briefly in a moment from Hebrews. And again, this situation with bread and wine is very interesting. We find it all the way through the Old Testament. And of course, it is looking forward ultimately to Jesus' body and Jesus' blood that was shed at Calvary. You know, the butler and the baker in Egypt, again, the bread and the wine. So many examples all the way through the Old Testament. Let's look at Hebrews. We read, for this Melchizedek, chapter 7 of verse 1, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. Well, now that's interesting because that's the name of, or the title of Melchizedek here, king of righteousness. Uh, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. 
It's really interesting what we're told here by the writer to the Hebrews. And we read on, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, through though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. The point that's being made here in Hebrews is that there's something way more special about Melchizedek than just the Aaronic priesthood that's going on here. Now, there's a lot of speculations about who this individual is. We're told there's no birth or death recorded. Now, this leads to all sorts of suggestions. Some people say, was he Shem? Well, probably not Shem. I mean, I can understand why some people might think that. Certainly time frame would probably fit. But we do know Shem's genealogy, so that seems to rule that out completely. Uh, then there's a really probable, possible explanation that actually Melchizedek is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Is that the case? Well, I don't think so, because we, we find... That for Jesus, his priesthood and the, the, the ironic priesthood was after the order or similitude of Melchizedek. It seems to suggest that that's not, that Melchizedek wasn't Christ in a, a pre-incarnate form. Was he a celestial being? Other people have even proposed. And again, I don't think so because we're clearly told that he's a man. So we don't know a huge amount about him, but seemingly he is a model looking forward to ultimately Christ who would be a prophet, a priest and a king and all of these things. But this is also interesting, because verse 21, we read on, it says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Give me the persons, and take thee the goods to thyself. Just consider what's happening here. The king of Sodom, Sodom, by the way, was in a valley. It lays at the bottom. We could quite legitimately call the king of Sodom the king of beneath. Jerusalem, on the other hand, was on a mountain, Mount Zion and Mount Moriah, there's various mountains in that region. See, the king of Sodom was the king from below. Melchizedek was very literally the king from above. We've got a real contrast being painted here between these two. And it's the king from below, notice what he's doing, he's offering Abraham material reward in exchange for the souls of men. Isn't that what happens all the time? that Satan will offer all sorts of things that he may take hold of people's lives, give them something by which they then feel accountable to him. Abraham rejects this, as you'll see in a second. For precisely that reason, he doesn't want to be in any way beholden unto this king, this king from below. But it's exactly what we see, that the devil will try and trick us, try and get us hooked, try and get us addicted to something that he always wants us to try and run back to, that we can't quite get away from him. The king of Jerusalem, the king of righteousness, totally different. Just to conclude the chapter, And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord. That's, that's where my strength comes from. He says, The most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. It's interesting, he's taken that, from what Melchizedek had just said, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine. Notice this, lest thou should say, I have made Abraham rich. 
Abraham wasn't going to become beholden to this individual. He said, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the young men uh, which went with me in our Eshkel, the Mamre. Let them take their portions. They were the friends of Abraham that had accompanied him uh, in his battle and so on. It's just interesting, again, that the God of this world would love to trap you with things, whereas the one true God wants to set you free from those things. There's a lot more we could dig into and uh, explore there. I encourage you, if you want to take that, go do your own study further. Next time we'll pick up, we'll look in chapter 15, at the, really, the reiteration and the, the, the real full establishment of this Abrahamic covenant that God establishes with Abraham, uh, which is just incredible uh, and obviously has incredible repercussions in the days in which we live. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity just to look at these things in your word. Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham. Lord, we thank you that he's a man who wanted to serve you, was willing to leave his home and all the things that he knew. And yet, Lord, as we see, still retained some of the baggage, some of those ties, some of those associations, Lord, which were holding him back from the blessings you had for him. Lord, may we realize, Lord, that you have such a wonderful plan of blessing for our lives that you can do, as your word says, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the riches that are in you in Christ Jesus. Well, Lord, with such blessings, with such promises, exceedingly great and precious promises, Lord, help us to have the faith to separate from the things of this world. Lord, to really seek you. Lord, as we were singing earlier, may we let go of all that we have so that we can find ourselves in you. Lord, we will be complete in you. We know that. And Father, help us to be mindful too that the devil will try and lure us or try and trap us or try and offer us all sorts of goods and things of this world that he may just take the souls of men. Lord, he's not interested in our blessing, our well-being. Lord, help us to realize and just to, as Joseph did, Lord, flee from temptation when it comes. Lord, we just thank you for this this morning. Just impress these things upon our hearts that we keep growing in knowledge and grace. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.